0: If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians is in the New Testament, so they're in the last quarter of your of your Bible, and probably about halfway through. You'll see Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. Uh, we began this series in Ephesians last week by just sort of getting a big picture for the whole book, Uh, but today we get to jump into some verses and really um, delve into the the meat of this book, as it were, and I'm excited to to get into this and hear what God has for us from the book of Ephesians. Um, When you or I sit down to dinner, it's hard to wrap our minds around how much work has gone into the food that's on the, the plate in front of us. We might pause and, and pray and give thanks for the person who made that food, but of course we could expand that, that prayer of thanks seemingly infinite in, in infinite ways, if you start to think about it. We could think about the grocery store workers or the owner of that grocery store who's created the space where we can go and buy food. Or we might consider the the truck drivers. We realize the value of truck drivers now who have brought that food to this place so that we can purchase it. Or We might think about the farmer who has has grown this food. We might even think about the rain that came so that 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 food could could grow and on and, and on and on and on. Well, in an even greater way, as we consider the blessing of salvation that is ours in Christ, we could give thanks and praise to God in infinite directions for all that he has done for us in saving us. And in a way, Paul models this kind of ever-expanding praise in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. He, He calls us to and leads us in praise to God for the work of salvation, Crafting a sentence of over 200 words in verses three through 11, that's a long sentence, and then add even adding even more praise in, in verses 12 through 14, each phrase delving deeper and deeper and rising higher and higher to speak about the greatness of the work that God has done that is ultimately inexpressible and even beyond our knowledge. And as you read these verses, as we read them together, we'll find a, a Trinitarian formula, in, in other words, Paul is praising God the Father, he's praising God the Son, he's praising God the Holy Spirit for their united work in redemption. If the concept of the the Trinity, of of God being one person, uh, of God being one but in three persons, if that's new to you, this is what it means, this is what our statement of faith as a church, this is what we believe. God is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature essence or being it's a hard thing to to understand but that's what we hold to and we see here in this in this first section of ephesians that While the the work of each member of the Trinity in salvation is unique, their actions are actually never completely independent. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work in harmony and never in isolation, though they're working in specific ways. In fact, the unity of the Godhead working in various ways is going to pave the way for the unity in the midst of diversity that Paul is calling the Ephesian church and us to in this whole book of Ephesians. We are to reflect in some ways the uniqueness of the triune God and the love that we have for one another despite all of our differences. Even here, we, we see that besides our, our salvation being done for the praise of his glory, God, God's work is, is leading, according to verse 11 in, in this chapter, to the uniting of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. I feel like... We're just jumping right in. It's, it's like the deep end and we're, we're, we're submerging ourselves in it. But I don't know how else to get into these verses. Um, I want to think about them as a whole because the, the coherence of this call to praise means that we should be careful about dividing it up too much and missing the, the broad scope of it. And yet the complexity of it means that we have to pause and we have to consider all that God has done for us in salvation. So I want us to to begin by reading Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 so that we can see the Trinity at work, but then we're just going to focus specifically on verses 3 through 6 today, Uh, and then we'll take up the work of of Jesus next week and then the work of the Spirit uh, the following week. But today, God's word calls us to worship. It's, a, it's a, a call to worship, and it says this, praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. That'll be our big idea for today. Praise the Father. We're thinking about the, whole, the Trinity's whole work, but today we're going to focus on the work of the Father in salvation. Praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. Praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. My my hope is that we're going to see in this call to worship that Paul gives us God's eternal purposes in our salvation. Not only in in his not only his greatness, but also the, the great call on our lives to image him in this world. And the greatness of his transforming love to we who are adopted into his family. The wonder of the salvation that God has accomplished in us is going to transform us. It sets us right. It takes us from the domain of darkness and sin and death. And it places us in the kingdom of light and life where we worship now and on into eternity. So here this this beautiful call to to worship God for his salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to read verses 3-3 to the praise of his glory. Look back at verses three through six again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. Immediately following his greeting in verses 1 through 2, Paul calls us to bless the Lord who has blessed us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So let's maybe make that our first point. Bless the Lord who has blessed us. Bless the Lord who has blessed us. Does that language sound familiar? Bless the Lord? Maybe it brings to mind our recent look at Psalm 103, where David told his soul to bless the Lord. Remember that? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. We we said that the Lord blesses us when he gives us the the fathomless list of good things that we know in this life. But can we bless the Lord in the same way? Uh, Can we give him something that he doesn't have? Of course not. How, how could we give the maker of all things something? Therefore, the, the way we bless the Lord is by receiving his blessings and then acknowledging that we would have nothing good in our lives except for his kindness. Psalm 72, 18 says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Another way to ask this question, how do we bless the Lord, is found in Psalm 116, 12. It says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The message translation says, What can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? What's the answer? Well, the answer is in the next verse of Psalm 116, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. How do we bless the Lord? By rejoicing in the salvation that he has given us and by turning to him alone as the source of all good. God is blessed by us when we turn away from idols, when we turn away from all other sources of hope and and strength, even ourselves, and we rest in him alone, when we recognize that it's only his grace that brings blessing to us. And here in Ephesians 1, Paul is blessing the Lord specifically for salvation. He is blessing the Lord as the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the only hope that any of us have of being reconciled to God and united to him or united to our fellow human beings or to use Paul's language, we are blessing the Lord as the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In the Old Testament, this call to worship, blessed be the Lord, it's a common phrase, it's a common call to worship, and it centers on Yahweh, on the the covenant-keeping God. Uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uses this same formula in in Luke one when he says this, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. But in some ways, Zechariah marks the final cry of Old Covenant praise because the arrival of Jesus transforms how we worship. And here, Paul shows us that. He shows us that we are called to bless the Lord as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just blessed be the Lord, but blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him as the one who has blessed us In Christ. Not only do we bless God as the source of all the goodness we we know, but we bless God as the Father of Jesus. Because Jesus is the agent through which all of his goodness has come. I started trying to think about an illustration of that. That God has blessed us through Jesus who's the agent through which all goodness has come. And I thought, I'm not going to mess with it. When you get into the Trinity, it's just hard to fathom it or even to illustrate it. Just recognize that all the blessings we have from God come through Christ. That's not to say that God himself, God the Father, is not working. He is. Paul says that he is the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But he's done it in Christ. And not only that, but these blessings also come from the Spirit. The Spirit is said to be in the heavenly places, the, the high heavenlies, as a commentator named, named S.M. Baal calls them. And Baal also explains that by saying that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he is saying that all the blessings of salvation find their, quote, origin and ultimate fulfillment in the high heavenlies. And the Spirit is the link between this world and the new creation. It's already blowing my mind. The blessings that we have then, they're, they're otherworldly. They, they come from heaven, and in another sense, they, they come from the future reality of us being seated with Christ in the new kingdom. In some ways, as I thought about this, it felt like science fiction. It, it feels like blessings coming from um, some uns, unseen realm and from some future reality. That's where our salvation comes from. And yet, in verse 4, Paul isn't concerned with the blessings that flow to us from the future. He, he's actually looking to the past. Here it's not science fiction, it's archaeology, and, it, and archaeology that goes all the way to the origins of the world, and then even further back. And and simply, Paul's not just looking back to Jesus. He's not just looking back to uh, Abraham or to the covenants made with David, he, he sees spiritual, the spiritual blessings that we have from the Father coming to us from before time itself even began. The roots of our salvation, we start to realize, are definitely not in us. If they go that far back to before even time began, they are definitely not in us. They are in the eternal mind of God. And so Paul tells us that the way the Father has blessed us is that he has chosen us And he has predestined us in eternity past. Let's break this down into a couple of points uh, as, as we see why we need to praise the Father for his eternal purposes in saving us. First in verse four, we see this. He has chosen us to be holy and blameless. The Father has chosen us to be holy and blameless. This verse speaks clearly of the eternal election of God of his having chosen his saints from before the world began. The only other time that we find this phrase before the foundation of the world is in John 17:24. That's where Jesus prays this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what Jesus is talking about there? Our minds are invited into a time before time, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit lived in perfect unity and love. And as they existed in complete joy with one another, they said to one another, in the words of in the words of Tim Keller, "Let's expand the circle. Let's create human beings, not to fill up something that's lacking in us." but so that they might experience the joy and the unity and the love that we know perfectly and that they might join in our work for our glory. In many ways, this eternal election of God that that we would be holy and blameless goes back to God's creation of humanity in his image. We might think about an image simply as something that represents something else. That's what an image is, right? It's something that represents something else. Think about your image. You you probably have an image of yourself on your phone and that that represents you. Moving back to worship, we know that, that images have been used in religious worship throughout all of history. Idols are images that represent a god. We read in the Old Testament of the images and the idols that the, that the nations uh, made. And we find that Israel was unique amongst all these nations. Why? Because God said, don't make any images of me. And Why did God tell them not to make images? In large part, because just as a picture can't capture all that you are in your emotions and in your personality and in your soul, even more so, infinitely more so, an image or an idol cannot capture everything that God is. So we cannot make them because they can't represent who God is. And yet another reason we're not to make images that was pointed out to me by the guys from the Bible Project is this. They they explained that God prohibiting the making of images of himself is because he's already made images of himself. And not just one image, but numberless images because all of humanity is created in the image of God to reflect who he is to represent him in the world. And yet even over seven and a half billion people in the world now and countless human beings, the countless human beings who have ever lived cannot adequately, adequately represent who our God is. And yet still that's what we've been created to do, to image our God. Now part of our inability to image God rightly and to reflect him and to show who he is goes back to the rebellion of Adam and Eve and the fall of of all humanity into sin that we read about earlier. The image of God has has been marred in us and yet Paul is telling us here that before the foundation of the world, even before the fall, God chose his people in Christ to image him, to be holy and blameless like him. We could look at Abraham and and know that this isn't something new. We look at Abraham in Genesis 17.1, and God says to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. What is God telling Abraham to do? He's telling Abraham to represent him to the nations. Show the nations who I am, Abraham, by the way that you walk blamelessly before me. We could think about when God gives Israel the law in Exodus 19, and they're called to be his special people, a nation of priests that are to represent him in the world. That's what we are called to do. That's what God's people have always been called to do. And yet, from the beginning, God's plan was was bigger than Abraham. It was bigger than Israel. He was choosing people from the whole world to represent him. He was doing it from eternity past. And It's in the coming of Jesus that we see his great purposes in choosing a people to image him in the world come to fruition. Peter, he bridges the gap for us when he writes to the the church of Jesus Christ made up of all these nations. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why? that you may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Paul says in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before Him. God has chosen us for a purpose to be holy and to be blameless before Him and before the world. Remember how Paul addresses the Ephesians back in um, in verse 1? He says they're saints, that they are holy ones. They're made holy by, by Jesus and they're called to be holy for God's glory. God God's choosing of his people is for a purpose. And it's the purpose that we might be holy and blameless before him and before the world. And this is only possible because of what Christ has done. The only way that we can be holy and blameless is if we are in Christ. Jesus who was the truly holy and truly blameless one. Jesus, who was the true chosen one, who imaged God perfectly and then died for all the ways that we have marred God's image in ourselves through sin. Through repentance and faith, he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before the Father holy and blameless and so that we might walk through the world as his redeemed image bearers. This is what God has eternally chosen his children to do. Romans 8:29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Chosen for a purpose, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why? In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. In order that we might be part of God's family. Representing our Father through the lives that we live that, that set him apart as holy. Now this bridges really well into verses five and six where Paul tells us that God not only chose us to be holy and blameless, but also he has predestined us to be adopted. God has predestined us to be adopted. He's predetermined it. He's looked forward and said, this is what I want to do. There's some debate about where those words at the end of verse four, in love, uh, what they're modifying. I think the way the ESV has it seems best, meaning that The in love modifies he predestined us. In love he predestined us. Uh, There are grammatical arguments to be sure, but there's also a tie to what he's predestined us to, namely to adoption. His uh, adoption of us was was not an obligation. It it wasn't something that he did against his will. God didn't adopt us reluctantly. In love he predestined to adopt us. Listen to, to how Russell Moore in this book adopted for life. He connects this to the uniqueness of, of actually what the, Gentile church, the Gentiles in Ephesus may have been feeling, and what we also feel from time to time. I want to read a little bit of this because it's really helpful, and he says it really well. The New Testament continually points to our adoption in Christ in order to show us that we're really, really wanted here in the Father's house really wanted in the Father's house. The Spirit is continually telling the people of Christ that they, we, are blessed in Christ through adoption, Ephesians 1, 3 and 5. We are all Abraham's children because Jesus is. Perhaps we were at one time Gentiles but we aren't part of the uncircumcised order anymore, Ephesians 2.11. We are now all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. We are to exchange our old self for the new self created after the likeness of God, Ephesians 4.22-24. We are now brothers. Now listen to this. The Gentile Christians in the early church must have wondered what they were doing following after this Jewish king from somebody else's religion. Had they wandered accidentally into somebody else's covenant? Were they clinging to some kind of exception clause to God's main purpose with Israel? Were were they parasites on the promise of God? That's really insightful to think about how these Gentiles were processing this. And then he says, some of the Jewish believers, those with consciences sensitive enough to see how uncircumcised their hearts could be too, must have wondered something similar. Don't you know what that feels like too? To wonder if you're an accidental visitor, awkwardly standing in the corner of a party to which you haven't been invited? What if our whole lives are like that? This fear is exactly why the New Testament ties our adoption to God's purpose in election. We were known beforehand, the Bible says, predestined to be conformed to the image of his his son, that that he might be the firstborn among brothers. In, in love, the text says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, in love. One final quote, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. God was looking for us. He rejoices in us. God wants you in his family. God, our Father, has adopted us in love. He has adopted us on purpose. And according to his eternal will, you are wanted in the family of God. And because he has adopted us in love, he's also adopted us to, to bless us. While Jesus certainly is the unique son of God, we who have trusted in him, we are all full-fledged children of God with, with no distinction between Jew or Greek or, or any other division, which means that we are all equal heirs with Christ. We all will inherit the same blessings of salvation because of our equal sonship. Paul closes verse six saying that we are blessed In the beloved. And what is the beloved? Better, who is the beloved? It's Jesus. Paul uses a unique name. He gives Jesus this name. You are are you are blessed in the beloved, in Jesus, who is the beloved Son of God. This is my son who I love with whom I am well pleased, God the Father says. And Paul tells us that we are beloved in the beloved. Our acceptance is is tied up with the love of God, the love that God has for the Son, the eternal love that God has for the Son is the kind of love with which he loves us. We often think about our salvation as having begun at the moment that we trusted in Christ. Is that how you think about your testimony? Well, I was saved the moment that I accepted Christ. Paul shows us that it began before time began. And in so doing, he shows us that God alone deserves all of the praise for our salvation. He deserves all of the praise for the blessings that flow to us. It's all, verse six says, what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Now we've used some big words, haven't we? Chosen, predestined we've got to recognize that these ideas are difficult. They, they bump up against our understanding of our own perceived independence and our own will. And we should wrestle with these things deeply. But let me give you at least one answer to the tension that's found in thinking about the idea that God has chosen and predestined his people, specifically, I think, drawn from this passage. And I've taken it from a, a sermon by a man named Derek Prime. This is what he said, and I think this is really helpful. When you give thanks to God for your salvation, says Prime, how do you do it? What words do you say? You see, we all get caught up in questions like, what about free will? What about the influence and in place of my decision making, of my choice? But when you speak about your salvation, what do you say? If, if you follow that line of thought logically, then God is limited to your choice, to your decision. You've got to say, time out. I'm gonna pat myself on the back for a minute. I made a really good decision. I haven't made many good decisions in my life, but that was a good one. (laughs) Prime goes on, he says, I've heard people speak about free will, but I've never heard them say, you know, I owe my salvation to my decision. Because when they get down on their knees, their theology is so much better. They say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Brothers and sisters, friends, questions about God's election, questions about the place of free will, they're not simple. They're not easy to answer. And I confess I don't have all the answers. But what I see here is Paul praising God as the author and the finisher of our faith. I see a call for us to praise our triune God, knowing that he alone has saved us, and that he has done it according to his eternal purposes of election and out of his eternal decree of love. So let's wrestle with these questions. I'm happy to talk about them with you. But let's never conclude those discussions by patting ourselves on the back. No, let's conclude by falling on our knees in thanks and praise to the God alone, to the God who saves, and he is the only one who can save us. That's the point of the fact that he has chosen and predestined us, because therefore he gets all the glory. If God alone saves us, then God alone deserves the glory. Praise, all praise to the Father, because of his eternal purposes in saving us. We praise him, we are are humbled by his glorious grace, not only because he saved our souls from eternal death, but also because what he has saved us Two, we, we don't pat ourselves on the back, but we do bow in humility at what God has called us to as his children that we've been talking about. We, we see here that God has worked in us so that we would represent him in the world and that we would rest in his love. Maybe those are two ways to think about applying this as we think about the, the greatness. In many ways, Paul gives all of his theology first and the applications in the second half of the of the of the book. And yet there's application here because I think what we realize is because God has done this, he's he saved us. Why? To represent him in the world and to rest in his love. That's what we're called to do. This is who you are, Christian. You, you are one who represents God in the world and who rests in his love. He has redeemed us to be saints, his, his image bearer, his, his holy and blameless people who show who he is and speak of his glorious grace to anyone who will listen. He has saved us so that we would rest secure in his love. You ever feel insecure? Rest secure in the love of God, knowing that that we are no longer orphans who have no home, but we are children of the living God with Jesus as our older brother and the saints of all ages as our family. Christian, this is who you are. This is who God has made you to be. And non-Christian, this is who you are made to be. This is why God made you. You know, after a sermon like this, you might be thrown by a question similar to one like this. But has God chosen me? You talk about election and maybe someone who's not a Christian says, well, what if I'm not chosen? How do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know that I can be saved? It's been said by many that election is best understood in hindsight. And they describe an imaginary door in heaven with these words written over the top. Whoever will may come. It's an open invitation. Everyone can come to Christ and find salvation. And the illustration goes on that if you walk through that door, if you come through that door in in repentance and faith, and you turn around, you'll see on the backside of that door another statement, and it says, chosen in him. Before the foundation of... the." chosen in him before the foundation of the world. For everyone who walks through Jesus, because Jesus is the door of salvation, we will sing the praise of the God who alone has saved us. The God who has made salvation such that it's it's his work from beginning to end. And if that's true, then he deserves all Praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. I want to invite you to praise the Father in this act of worship. This act of worship that we call the Lord's Supper. If your hope is in Christ alone, I want to invite you to take this meal as a remembering, as a means of remembering what God has done for us, to do it as, a, as an act of worship to remember what God has done for us in Christ and that what he has done for us in Christ, he purposed from eternity past. We can eat this bread and drink this cup to the praise of his glorious grace. If your hope is not in Christ alone for salvation, then I would simply ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. Um, In a moment, we're going to, to pass the elements. Joshua, would you help me when it comes time to do that? appreciate it. But let's take a moment of silence first to reflect on what God has done for us in Christ to prepare our hearts to take this meal together and then I will pray for us and we'll pass the bread and the cup together. Father, we bless you, praise you as the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Lord, all the goodness that we have is ours because of your purposes, because of the purposes of of your will, because of your determination to show us grace. Lord, we are accepted in you. We see the love that you've shown to us in Christ, and we give you thanks for what he has done. Lord, as we now remember his shed blood and his broken body, would you be with us? Would you guide our, our minds and our hearts to, into worship of, of what you have done for us in Christ? I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.